Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Comedian Ali Castro jokes around about family, cultural identity, and the Puerto Rican experience in his one-man show, Made in Puerto Rico. It's been doing great off-Broadway. Ellie is in Chicago to perform at the Laugh Factory as part of McCormick College's Learn to Laugh fundraiser. It is great to meet you, Ellie Castro. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. And I want to plug your... Um, your podcast, I was listening to it. It's really fun. You've done oh, like 120 episodes. Now you're getting me emotional. That's because <laughs> that's that's a that's a work of love for me. And uh, uh, I've done the podcast now for two and a half years. It's a weekly show. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, and uh, I love it. It's almost like a a sitcom that I try to do when I try to edit it. And as you know, you've got some um, rotating characters and people. Yeah, come of in course, I've got guests. Yeah, so it's, it's something that's a project that I love so much. So I, I, I thank you. I really do. I want to ask you about, um, you've been working on Made in Puerto Rico for a long time. It's kind of like a, a life project for you or something. It's <laughs> yeah. something you've done for 10 years in, in kind of different forms. Yeah, um, the uh, initial form started in 03. Uh, and it developed into the, to, to the made in Puerto Rico that it is now back in 07. Uh, so it's taken many shape, many shapes, many forms, uh, and uh, until it finally got to where it is now off Broadway, which has been, uh, an incredible blessing. Uh, what do you want to say to the audience in made in Puerto Rico? What are you trying to, what are you trying to get them feeling? That, that, that it's okay to feel proud about where you're from. To feel proud about who you are, um, that you don't have to dumb it down uh, to, so that people are, uh, you know, uh, less uncomfortable. Uh, be proud of who you are. Don't generalize it. For example, if you're Puerto Rican, you're not necessarily Latino or Hispanic. Be Puerto Rican. And if you're from Nicaragua, you know, be from Nicaragua and tell me about your stories. Tell me about your family uh, so that I can find points of interest that I can relate to. And then we can come together and have a conversation about our grandmothers or the way we cook rice uh, or the way we celebrate Christmas. Uh, so really, it's, it's, a, it's about cultural identity and cultural pride. Do you feel like the conversation about Puerto Rico's changed since Hurricane Maria? Absolutely. Without a doubt. And uh, the first conversation is that our people in Puerto Rico are a lot stronger uh, than we realize, a lot stronger than we give them credit for. Because my family, to understand what they went through was incredible. Uh, and they never complained once. Uh, I would have been crying every night. I would have been writing letters and, and you know, <laughs> and pleading uh, for my life. What happened to your family? Uh, well, they were without electricity for nearly a year. Uh, they were without water for a very long time. Uh, but they never complained. They got in lines when they had to get in lines. Uh, I sent them supplies when I could. They, they had to wait, you know, many, many days for just basic relief supplies. Um, but when they were telling me, when I was walking around the streets with them, they were telling me how bad it was. But they were almost saying it as it, like, like we talk about the weather here, you know. <laughs> Wasn't it horrible that yesterday was in the 50s, you know. But just matter of factly. Uh, and, and I was shocked by it, by it. So that's really the first conversation is their strength, by all means. The, the way they persevere was really evident during that. And the second conversation is that another beautiful thing that happened was that Puerto Ricans in the island started to recognize how much, um, how many Puerto Ricans are outside of the island that care about the island just as much as they do. Because there's this tendency, right, that once you leave the island, well, you're not really from there anymore. Uh, and, and I and I respect that. But we love Puerto Rico just as much, if not more. Uh, and, and so there was a unity. There was a, a come-togetherness of, of both 
uh, Puerto Ricans that I think was special when Lee Manuel Miranda brought uh, Hamilton to Puerto Rico, for example. There you go. Yeah. Um, now the um, you left at age nine and went to New yes, York sir. and became a great big fancy attorney and successful <laughs> comedian. <laughs> well, it took many years, but I, I love the way you said it. It felt like it was overnight. <laughs> but I grew up in New York and then I became an attorney in Florida. I subsequently took the bar exam in Florida, Illinois, and New York, which is insane, by the way. I, I challenge any lawyer to tell me how many bars exam, bar exams they took. Um, but it took me a while uh, to kind of find uh, kind of who I wanted to be because it wasn't until I was a prosecutor that I started writing stories, that I started uh, uh, feeling this need to entertain families in a bicultural, bilingual way that I think has been missing. For example, you can't see a comedy show uh, that is clean, that is culturally oriented, and that is done in both languages, which I think is is something that we have to choose, right? If you know two languages, you either have to speak English or Spanish. Uh, you have to exist in, in one or the other. But in my shows, I try to show you that we can live in both. Even if you don't understand Spanish, I make it so that you kind of do. And you look around like, I, I don't, I'm laughing and I don't know exactly why, but I kind of get it. And that's my goal. I'm talking with Ellie Castro about his one-man show, Made in Puerto Rico. He's doing uh, bits of it today at the tonight at the Laugh Factory. It's part of McCormick College's Learn to Laugh fundraiser. So getting back to what I was saying about um, aud- do audiences, when they're coming to you, so are they uh, – do they feel differently informed than uh, previously about Puerto Rico? Are you seeing a different audience that with a different kind of uh, attitude since Hurricane Maria? Because you've been playing off-Broadway for a stretch of time. Five but I would say, yeah. you, you know, it's not going to be – it's not all Puerto Ricans. You've got to be – you've got to have a bunch more people in there. Absolutely. No, we had, we've had uh, Puerto Ricans, uh, Dominicans, Cubans, uh, all kinds, even, you know, non-Spanish-speaking people. And their comments are the ones that I listen to very carefully um, because, I mean, the, the, the response has been overwhelming. So Puerto Ricans will tell me, thank you so much for making me feel even more proud. Thank you so much for, uh, for representing us. Uh, thank you so much for bringing us to, uh, to bringing this attention to Puerto Rico and, and our people. And even if you are not Puerto Rican or don't speak Spanish, um, you feel excited because now you know. Now you understand a little bit more than you did before. So the response has been amazing. It really has been. How do you handle um, all the you know, kind of uh, comedy that is going on around Puerto Rico in the headlines? There is almost a... Um, hilarious if it wasn't so tragic thing yeah. that is uh, <laughs> words going back and forth constantly that you know Donald Trump is talking about the 90 billion dollars that they've wasted in Puerto Rico <laughs> uh, I mean it's tra- there's crazy things going on do you uh, do you want to address that do you feel like uh, that I, that is uh, kind of the comedy of life is too rich these days yeah that, that, that that's a great question um, but in my shows I, I, I stay away from that I think there's too much noise as it is and I like that when you walk into the theater to see my show, um, I, I, I shut that noise out uh, and I give you new noise. I give you something else to listen to because we're bombarded by that as it is 24 hours a day uh, in our news cycle. But when you're at my theater, I want to celebrate. I want to show you what else you can celebrate. I want to laugh about the way my mom cooks. I want to laugh about the way we celebrate Christmas. I want to laugh about the way we drive in Puerto Rico. <clears throat> I want to give you things to think about and talk about other than what the president has said or what this politician has said. Because quite frankly, politics in Puerto Rico uh, have been crazy long before Donald Trump. 
Uh, what is something funny about the way you celebrate Christmas or drive a car? Well, very simple. Uh, we celebrate Christmas uh, after 3 a.m. That's usually <laughs> when we begin our Christmas celebrations. Uh, it's long after you've fallen asleep. That's when we get started. Yeah. And driving is very simple. We drive on sidewalks. That's how wide our streets are. So in the width of a sidewalk, you're expected to have two cars, right, going in either direction, plus cars parked on each side, plus people walking because that's also a sidewalk plus horses um so it's an adventure right so if you go from point a to point b and you live it's considered a successful trip (laughs) (laughs) now um um, none of this is funny it's real it's like a documentary i just it's a documentary but it is funny when you think about it of course um well uh, you know the seed of the show um in part was uh your son and your your son's birth was is that true yeah, because my son, uh, my mom made a big deal about the fact that uh, he wasn't going to be born in Puerto Rico. And, and she was adamant that we were all going to be born in Puerto Rico so that we could be Puerto Rican. And I felt weird, right? Because I knew my son was going to be born in Florida, uh, much to my mother's dismay, because she wanted us to actually move there for a couple of months just so that he could be born physically in Puerto Rico. And I thought, mm, something's missing with that. because I, Just because my son is born in Florida doesn't mean he, he can't be raised Puerto Rican. And I never wanted my son to have a doubt about who he was um, because we're very proud. I never wanted my son to feel like an outcast in his own family. So I made this show to show him that that being who you are is not necessarily where you're from or where you live or where you were born, but rather how you're raised uh, and, and how proud you are within that culture. Uh, it, it makes who you are. You understand? Not necessarily, oh, I have a birth certificate that says I was born in San Juan, therefore I'm Puerto Rican. I know many people that were born in Puerto Rico that would easily shun their culture. Uh, so for my son, it was important that he understand that just because he was born in Orlando uh, doesn't mean he's less Puerto Rican than I am. And it goes to a lot of people who were born away from their homeland, that their parents brought them here, et cetera. So it connects with them for that same reason. Ellie Castro is here in Chicago doing uh, his show Made in Puerto Rico, or portions of it, at the Laugh Factory tonight. It's part of McCormick College's Learn to Laugh fundraiser, and you can always enjoy Ellie Castro on the web. He is uh, a fine podcaster and does a weekly show there as well. Thank you very much. podcast, the Ellie Castro Show. Thank you so much for plugging that. No problem. Great to meet you, and congratulations on Made in Puerto Rico. I'm glad it's doing so great off-Broadway. Thank you. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday, the Trump administration designated Iran's Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization, the first time a government entity has been so designated. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the move would deprive the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism the financial means to spread misery and death around the world. Pompeo described it as a direct response to an outlaw regime that should surprise no one. Worldview's Julian Haida went to Lincoln Park to see how many people knew about terrorism and Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Could you name a notable terrorist incident in the last uh, 40 or 50 years? School shootings technically is terrorizing people, like Sandy Hook and stuff like that. Um, But one in Turkey at the airport? (laughs) 9-11. I mean, that was pretty bad. Uh, (laughs) Um, 9-11. 9-11. 9-11. We've had so many. 
we've had the synagogue, we've had massacres in schools, we've had three churches burned in the south again, historic black churches. Um, the San Bernardino shooting. Boston Marathon bombing. The Brussels airports, the uh, Charlie Hebdo assault. The murder of abortion doctors in the 1990s. And so that really created a climate of terror, not only among women, but also among the LGBTQ community. Um, the Nice attacks that happened, I think it was uh, two or three years ago? I was in Spain two years ago, and um, uh, ISIS uh, ran a van through a crowd of people where exactly where I was. And then there's terrorist acts that occur all over the Middle East that we perpetrate, too. Now, could you name an incident instigated by Iran's Revolutionary Guard? I don't think I could. I feel really ignorant. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I think a lot of people, including myself, are very naive to what's going on in the world. Now, can you possibly name a terrorist attack by Iran's Revolutionary Guard? By Iran's Revolutionary Guard specifically? I don't know if I... I don't entirely know if I know enough about the subject, but from what I, but from what I understand from the National Guard itself, no. Um... Not off the top of my head. I don't think I could. I don't know much about that. Uh, I'm not aware of any. No. No, I cannot. Uh, no. <sighs> it escapes my mind right now. Not to my knowledge, no. Nothing that I've heard of, even though the government's coming out against it, and even though Trump was in business with them up until a short period of time, and maybe even still now. Can't think of anything. Not off the top of my head, no. I think there's different types of terrorism. You know, there's, like, physical, but then there's verbal, emotional, you know, and I don't think a lot of people pay attention to the prejudice against Middle Eastern people. I have an Iranian friend and he gets, like, harassed every day. I wouldn't even know. Like, I've, I've, I'm not even going to pretend to know, so. Now, can you think of any that's uh, instigated or backed by Iran's Revolutionary Guard? <laughs> um, I have no reason to, I have no information on that. I think that's just the, the name of the elite forces in their army. Their issues have always been specifically located within their direct sphere of influence, either within the context of war, just like the U.S. has done in Iraq when we've been there, whether or our support of uh, the fighting that's going on in Yemen. There's no difference between what they were doing between Iraq and Iran back in the day. And apart from that, like I said, they're just policing people to make sure that they're wearing the Khodor correctly or they're wandering around the country. So no. That's Worldview's Julian Haida in Lincoln Park, seeing how much people know about terrorism and Iran's Revolutionary Guard. The Trump administration designated Iran's Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization yesterday. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Haiti stands at a crossroads, according to U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet. The U.N. is winding down its peacekeeping presence in the country to focus on development efforts. Dr. Michelle Morse is involved in development in Haiti. She's co-founder and she's founding co-director of Equal Health, and Equal Health helps support Haiti's medical community. Dr. Michelle Morris is assistant program director for the Internal Medicine Residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me, Jerome. And she's in town to talk uh, with the Social Justice International Women's Speaker Series at the UIC Social Justice Initiative. She'll be speaking tonight at the UIC uh, Center East at 6 o'clock. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you got involved in Haiti. What happened? 
Yeah, thank you for asking. I um, am West Philadelphia born and raised myself. And um, being the daughter of a public school teacher and a funeral home director, actually, um, I think social justice was a a big part of my upbringing, for sure, and explicitly um, the history of black people in America. Um, So I got involved as a medical student in kind of health equity issues in my home community of West Philadelphia um, and had the opportunity and honor of spending some time in in Botswana, living there for a year um, in 2006, which was kind of in a lot of ways the height of the AIDS epidemic. And a lot of my experience then really got me engaged and activated um, to involve myself in global health efforts in Botswana. Um, And that actually led me to Boston for my residency training in internal medicine and public health. And that's how I got involved in Partners in Health back in 2009. That's the Paul Farmer organization. That's right. Exactly. So my first trip to Haiti was in 2009 with Paul Farmer and others. And I got to spend time in rural Haiti. and just completely fell in love with the work that the Haitian team was leading. Um, And they really have been my mentors and teachers ever since. And not long after my first trip to Haiti in 2009, the earthquake happened. Um, And that really just totally changed my world and my perspective on global health Um, and and just how privileged I was to be training in Boston, right, which is, you know, kind of in a lot of ways the mecca for medicine. And I was privileged to be training at a hospital that had an unbelievable amount of resources and just felt compelled, really, um, to try to support the friends and colleagues I had met in Haiti in rebuilding their medical education system after the earthquake in January 2010. And so Equal Health is you and other physicians and medical uh, folk, and you're, you're trying to help them. Correct. And and I would say it's it's more even about solidarity than help. We're very much about a justice approach to this work that it's really unjust, actually, that we have the resources we have in Boston for training the next generation of health professionals, and Haiti does not. And so we see ourselves, and, and luckily, we're not just physicians. We are nurses. We're social workers. We're public health professionals. We're physicians as well. We're even lawyers and, and other folks um, all you know, united in the idea that it's unjust what's happening in the health system in Haiti, that our country, unfortunately, has been a part of some of the problems in Haiti and a driver of some of those challenges, and that we have a responsibility to stand in solidarity with all of our colleagues in Haiti, especially students, um, again, as, as our focus is around the next generation of health professionals in supporting their vision for the future of healthcare in Haiti and the future of Haitian society. So, How do you do it? How do you support the next generation of healthcare professionals from Haiti? Yeah, I think there are a lot oh, of I different bet, ways. Uh, do, do a lot of them want to leave Haiti and come mm. to the U.S. and make a lot of money? That's a great question. Um, there are a lot of opportunities for health professionals, as you said, here in the U.S., um, but the students that we work with are committed to the future of Haiti. And I think what we've been able to do, one of the ways we've been able to try to support their vision and invest in their vision Um, is through social medicine. And social medicine is really the idea that inequity kills and that to be successful in improving the health of a community or a country, we have to recognize that it's not just the biomedical things like 
you know, the the microbe that causes pneumonia, but it's actually the things like political decisions and the social determinants of health that actually determine even more powerfully than just a bacteria, for example, who's going to be healthy and who's not going to be healthy. So the Haitian students that we've been teaching um, and partnering with in the social medicine realm for the past seven years have started their own student-led organization called Social Medicine Alumni Haiti that has now held seminars on social medicine for over a thousand Haitian health students. And so they're really determining what the next generation of health professionals in Haiti are going to do. And they're going to make sure that it's both structural and social change that really drives the transformation of the healthcare system in Haiti. I'm talking with Dr. Michelle Morris. She's founding co-director of Equal Health that helps support Haiti's medical community. I, you know, <laughs> when it comes to political decision making in Haiti, I mean, there's a lot to do. Mm-hmm. And the people have been in the streets since December. There's mm-hmm. been, I used to read a statistic that said 200 demonstrations. Mm-hmm. There was big time violence in, in February, the, mm. there was a stoning of the president's house, and mm-hmm. people are really mad about corruption, and mm-hmm. the oil industry is just shot. Um, what do you, how do you digest something like that in, in a, in a <laughs> health and well-being perspective? Mm-hmm. There's, there is like a, um, you know, flat-out collapse of, of, uh, of what you need. Yeah. No, it's it's an incredibly challenging period in Haiti right now. And our team that lives and works in Haiti has been really um, generous in trying to help us understand because certainly as a bunch of Americans, you know, it's it's not our right to determine what's happening in Haiti. But really our colleagues in Haiti who've been living this experience um, have really helped us to understand, you know, again, as Americans, what's really going on. And I think it's actually for us been the perfect way to practice social medicine. Because instead of only saying, man, it looks, you know, things are terrible in the streets in Haiti, the, you know, headlines look awful, we've asked the question, well, what are the political decisions that have led to the unrest that are happening, that's happening in Haiti right now? And one of the first answers is actually IMF policies. So in July last summer, what happened was that there were huge protests, the airport even shut down for a couple of days. And it was easy enough to say, oh, it's because the president raised the prices of fuel and got rid of the fuel subsidies that made fuel much more affordable, especially for poor Haitians. Um, But the reason why the president actually made that political change and made that decision was because the Haitian government was nearly bankrupt and requested an urgent loan from the IMF to remain solvent and to pay its employees. And the IMF's condition for getting that emergency loan was to get rid of fuel subsidies because the IMF's policy is that that's not a good use of funds. Um, And we could talk for a whole nother hour about why that is. Um, But behind the president's decision was actually a global kind of economic um, body that has not always had, in my opinion, the interests of average poor Haitians um, in mind when it's making um, demands on governments that are suffering from impoverishment and suffering from globalization and neoliberalism that have really led to a lot of the challenges that we're now seeing in Haiti. So 
it's really using, again, that structural approach, you know, the five whys, asking, well, why was that? And then why was that? And, wh- and then why was that? And recognizing for me as an American citizen that, you know, my government, unfortunately, has not always had the best policies towards Haiti to ensure Haiti's economic independence. Um, and that therefore health in Haiti suffers as a consequence of those political decisions. And that's what we work with our students in Haiti to really be able to describe and to fight against. Uh, Your talk tonight is uh, about human rights, health, and women in Haiti. I haven't had a chance to say anything about women, uh, but we've got just a minute or so left. Uh, how, How are you going to address that tonight? Women in Haiti are what Haitians call the potomitan. Potomitan means like kind of the 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 foundation of Haitian society. Um, and I think what I lived working in Haiti side by side with my colleagues in Haiti over the past 10 years is the strength of Haitian women, despite some of the most difficult conditions um, I have ever seen. Um, the maternal mortality rate in Haiti, unfortunately, is one of the worst in the Western Hemisphere. And that's not because Haitian women are negligent. That is because the health system in Haiti has been systematically impoverished, unfortunately. And so the health system's unable to meet the needs of Haitian women. So 380 women die per 100,000. That's the maternal mortality rate in Haiti. And in the U.S., it's about 24 per 100,000. So orders of magnitude worse. And that is a profound injustice that's related to social and structural decisions. So for me, um, the talk tonight is going to be about centering and bringing light to the experiences of Haitian women who know exactly how to fix the Haitian health system and who unfortunately haven't had the voice to be able to demand that that is done. Um, So we'll talk about that tonight. Dr. Michelle Morris is involved in development in Haiti. She's founding co-director of Equal Health. They help support Haiti's medical community. She is speaking on health, human rights, and women in Haiti this evening at 6 p.m. at the UIC Student Center. It's part of the Social Justice International Women's Speaker Series presented by the UIC Social Justice Initiative. It's been great to meet you. Good luck in the future. Thank you so much, Jerome. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.